Chapter Thirty of the Revolt of the Angels. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Revolt of the Angels by Anatole France, translated by Mrs. Wilfred Jackson. Chapter Thirty, which treats of an affair of honor, and which will afford the reader an opportunity of judging whether, as Arcadi affirms, the experience of our faults makes better men and women of us. The ground chosen for the combat was Colonel Manchon's garden, on the boulevard de la Reine at Versailles. Messieurs de la Verdelière and Le Truc de Ruffec, who had both of them constant practice in affairs of honor, and knew the rules with great exactness, assisted Maurice de Parvieux. No duel was ever fought in the Catholic world without Monsieur de la Verdelière being present and in making application to this swordsman, Maurice had conformed to custom, though not without a certain reluctance, for he had been notorious as the lover of Madame de la Verdelière. But Monsieur de la Verdelière was not to be looked upon as a husband. He was an institution. As to Monsieur Le Truc de Ruffec, honor was his only known profession, and avowedly his sole resource and when the matter was made the subject of ill-natured comment in society, the question was asked what finer career than that of honor Monsieur Le Truc de Ruffec could possibly have adopted. Arcadi's seconds were Prince Istar and Theophile. The celestial musician had not voluntarily, nor with a good grace, taken a hand in this affair. He had a horror of every kind of violence, and disapproved of single combat. The report of pistols and the clash of swords were intolerable to him, and the sight of blood made him faint. This gentle son of heaven had obstinately refused to act as second to his brother, Arcadi, and to bring him to the starting point, the cherub had had to threaten to break a bottle of panclastite over his head. Besides the combatants, the seconds, and the doctors, the only people in the garden were a few officers from the barracks at Versailles and several reporters. Although young Desparvieux was known merely as a young man of family, and Arcadi had never been heard of at all, the duel had attracted quite a large crowd of inquisitive individuals, and the windows of the adjoining houses were crammed with photographers, reporters, and society people. What had aroused much curiosity was that a woman was known to be the cause of the quarrel. Many mentioned Bouchot, but the majority said it was Madame de Abel. It had been remarked upon, moreover, that duels in which Monsieur de la Verdelière acted as second drew all Paris. The sky was a soft blue, the garden all abloom with roses, a blackbird was piping in a tree. Monsieur de la Verdelière, who, stick in hand, conducted the affair, laid the points of the swords together, and said, Allez, messieurs! Maurice Desparvieux attacked by doubling and beating the blade. Arcadi retired, keeping his sword in line. The first engagement was without result. The seconds were under the impression that Monsieur Desparvieux was in a grievous state of nervous irritability, and that his adversary would wear him down. 
In the second encounter, Maurice attacked wildly, spread out his arms, and exposed his breast. He attacked as he advanced, gave a straight thrust, and the point of his sword grazed Arcadi on the shoulder. The latter was thought to be wounded, but the seconds ascertained with surprise that it was Maurice who had received a scratch on the wrist. Maurice asserted that he felt nothing, and Dr. Kiel declared, after examination, that his client might continue the fight. After the regulation quarter of an hour, the duel was resumed. Maurice attacked with fury. His adversary was obviously nursing him, and what disturbed Monsieur de la Verdelière seemed to be paying very little attention to his own defense. At the opening of the fifth bout, a black spaniel that had got into the garden no one knew how rushed out from a clump of rose bushes, made its way on the space reserved for the combatants, and, in spite of sticks and cries, ran in between Maurice's legs. The latter seemed as though his arm were benumbed, merely gave a shoulder thrust at his invulnerable opponent. He then delivered a straight lunge and impaled his arm on his adversary's sword, which made a deep wound just below the elbow. Monsieur de la Verdelière stopped the fight, which had lasted an hour and a half. Maurice was conscious of a painful shock. They laid him down on a grassy bank against a wall covered with wisteria. While the surgeon was dressing the wound, Maurice called Arcadi and offered him his wounded hand. And when the victor, saddened with his victory, advanced, Maurice embraced him tenderly, saying, "'Be generous, Arcadi. Forgive my treachery. Now that we have fought, I can ask you to be reconciled with me.' He embraced his friend, weeping, and whispered in his ear, "'Come and see me, and bring Gilbert.' Maurice, who was still unreconciled with his parents, was taken to the little flat in the Rue de Rome. No sooner was he stretched out on the bed at the far end of the bedroom, where the curtains were drawn, as on the day of the apparition, than he saw Arcadi and Gilbert appear. He began to suffer greatly from his wound. His temperature was rising, but he was at peace, happy and contented. Angel and woman, both in tears, drew themselves at the foot of the bed. He took both their hands with his left, smiled on them, and kissed them tenderly. "'I am sure now that I shall never quarrel with either of you again. You will deceive me no more. I now know you are capable of anything.' Gilbert, weeping, swore that Maurice had been misled by appearances that she had never betrayed him with Arcadi, that she had never betrayed him at all. And in a great gush of sincerity she persuaded herself that this was so. "'You wrong yourself, Gilbert,' replied the wounded man. "'It did happen. It had to. And it is well. Gilbert, you were basely false to me with my best friend in this very room, and you were right.' If you had not been, we should not be here, reunited, all three of us. 
and I should not be at your side tasting the greatest happiness of my life. Oh, Gilbert, how wrong of you to deny a perfect and accomplished fact. If you wish, my friend, replied Gilbert, a little acidly, I will not deny it, but it will only be to please you. Maurice made her sit down on the bed and begged Arcadi to be seated in the armchair. My friend, said Arcadi, I was innocent. I became man. Straightway I did evil, then I became better. Do not let us exaggerate things, said Maurice. Let's have a game of bridge. Scarcely, however, had the patient seen three aces in his hand and called no trumps than his eyes began to swim. The cards slipped from his fingers. Head fell heavily back on the pillow, and he complained of a violent headache. Almost immediately, Madame de Abel went off to pay some calls, for she made a point of appearing in society, in order that the calmness and confidence of her demeanor might give the lie to the various rumors that were current concerning her. Arcadi saw her to the door, and, with a kiss, inhaled from her a delicate perfume which he brought back with him into the room where Maurice lay dozing. "'I am perfectly content,' murmured the latter, "'that things should have happened as they have.' "'It was bound to be so,' answered the spirit. "'All the other angels in revolt would have done as I did with Gilbert.' "'Women,' saith the apostle, "'should pray with their heads covered because of the angels.' and the apostle speaks thus because he knows that the angels are disturbed when they look upon them and see that they are beautiful. No sooner do they touch the earth than they desire to embrace mortal women and fulfill their desire. Their clasp is full of strength and sweetness. They hold the secret of those ineffable caresses which plunge the daughters of men into unfathomable depths of delight laying upon the lips of their happy victims a honey that burns like fire, making their veins flow with torrents of refreshing flames, they leave them raptured and undone. "'Stop your clatter, you unclean beast!' cried the wounded one. "'One word more,' said the angel, "'just one other word, my dear Maurice, to bear out what I say, and I will let you rest quietly.' There's nothing like having sound references. In order to assure yourself that I am not deceiving you, Maurice, on this subject of the amorous embraces of angels and women, look up Justin, Apologies 1 and 2, Flavius Josephus, Jewish Antiquities, Book 1, Chapter 3, Athenagoras, Concerning the Resurrection, Lactanius, Book 2, Chapter 15. Tertullian, On the Veil of the Virgins. Marcus of Ephesus in Cellus. Eusebius, Preparatio Evangelica, Book 5, Chapter 4. St. Ambrose, in his book on Noah and the Ark, Chapter 5. St. Augustine, in his City of God, Book 15, Chapter 23. Father Maldonat, the Jesuit, Treatise on Demons, page 248. 
Pierre Lebierre, the king's counselor. Arcadi, please, for pity's sake, be quiet. Do, please do, and send this dog away, cried Maurice, whose face was burning, and whose eyes were starting from his head, for in his delirium he thought he saw a black spaniel on his bed. Madame de la Verdelière, who was assiduous in every modish and patriotic practice, was reckoned in the best French society as one of the most gracious of the great ladies interested in good works. She came herself to ask for news of Maurice, and offered to nurse the wounded man. But at the vehement instigation of Madame de Aubel, Arcadi shut the door in her face. Expressions of sympathy were showered upon Maurice. Piled on the salver, visiting cards displayed their innumerable little dog's ears. Monsieur Le Truc de Ruffec was one of the first to show his manly sympathy at the flat in the Rue de Rome, and, holding out his loyal hand, asked young Desparvieux, as one honorable man to another, for twenty-five louis to pay a debt of honor. Of course, my dear Maurice, that is the sort of thing one could not ask of everybody. The same day, Monsieur Gaetan came to press his nephew's hand. The latter introduced Arcadi. This is my guardian angel, whose foot you thought so beautiful when you saw the print it had made on the tell-tale powder, uncle. He appeared to me last year in this very room. You don't believe it? Well, it is true, nevertheless. Then, turning towards the spirit, he said, What say you, Arcadi? The Abbe Patouille, who is a great theologian and a good priest, does not believe that you are an angel, and Uncle Gaetan, who doesn't know his catechism and hasn't a scrap of religion in him, doesn't think so either. They deny you, the pair of them, the one because he has faith, the other because he hasn't. After that you may be sure that your history, if ever it comes to be narrated, will scarcely appear credible. Moreover, the man that took it into his head to tell your story would not be a man of taste, and would not come in for much approval. For your story is not a pretty one. I love you, but I sit in judgment upon you, too. Since you fell into atheism, you have become an abominable scoundrel, a bad angel, a bad friend, a traitor, and a homicide, for I suppose it was to bring about my death that you sent that black spaniel between my legs on the dueling ground. The angel shrugged his shoulders, and, addressing Gaetan, said, Alas, monsieur, I am not surprised at finding little credit in your eyes. I have been told that you have fallen out with the Judeo-Christian heaven, which is where I came from. Monsieur, answered Gaetan, my faith in Jehovah is not sufficiently strong to enable me to believe in his angels. Monsieur, he whom you call Jehovah is really a coarse and ignorant demiurge, and his name is Ialdabaoth. In that case, monsieur, I am perfectly ready to believe in him. He is a narrow-minded ignoramus, is he? 
then belief in his existence offers me no further difficulty. How is he getting on? Badly. We are going to lay him low next month. Don't make too sure of that, monsieur. You remind me of my brother-in-law, Cuisart, who has been expecting to hear of the fall of the Republic for the past thirty years. You see, Arcadi, exclaimed Maurice, Uncle Gaetan thinks as I do. He knows you won't succeed. And pray, Monsieur Gaetan, what makes you think I shall not succeed? Your Yaldabaoth is still very powerful in this world, if he isn't in the other. In days gone by, he used to be upheld by his priests, by those who believed in him. Now he is supported by those who do not believe in him, by the philosophers. A pedant of a fellow called Picrochelet has recently come on the scene who wants to make a bankrupt of science in order to do a good turn to the church. And just lately, pragmatism has been invented for the express purpose of gaining credit for religion in the minds of rationalists. You have been studying pragmatism? Not I. I was frivolous once, and I went in for metaphysics. I read Hegel and Kant. I have become serious with years, and now I only trouble myself about things evident to the senses, what the eye can see or what the ear can hear. Man is summed up in art. All the rest is moonshine. Thus the conversation went on until evening. It was marked by obscenities that would have brought a blush, I will not say to a cuirassier, for cuirassiers are frequently chaste, but even to a Parisienne. Monsieur Sariette came to see his old pupil. When he entered the room, the bust of Alexandre de Parvieu seemed to take shape behind the librarian's bald head. He drew near the bed. In the place of blue curtains, mirrored wardrobe, and chimney-piece, there straightway came into view the heavy-laden bookcases of the room of the globes and busts, and the air was heavy with piles of papers, records, and files. Monsieur Sariette could not be disassociated from his library. One could not conceive of him or even see him apart from it. He himself was paler, more vague, more shadowy, and more a creature of the fancy than the fancies he evoked. Maurice, who had grown very quiet, was sensible of this mark of friendship. "'Sit down, Monsieur Sariette. You know Madame de Abel. May I introduce Arcadi to you, my guardian angel?' It was he who, while yet invisible, pillaged your library for two years, made you lose all desire for food and drink, and drove you to the verge of madness. He it was who moved piles of books from the room of the busts to my summer-house one day. Under your very nose he took away I know not what precious volumes, and was the cause of your falling on the staircase. Another day he took a volume of Salamorinex, and, forced to go out with me, for he never left me, as I have learnt later, he let the volume drop in the gutter of the Rue Princess, 
Forgive him, Monsieur Sariette. He had no pockets. He was invisible. I bitterly regret, Monsieur Sariette, that all your old books were not devoured by fire or swallowed up by a flood. They made my angel lose his head. He became man, and now knows neither faith nor obedience to laws. It is I now who am his guardian angel. God knows how it will all end. While listening to his speech, Monsieur Sariette's face took on an expression of infinite, irreparable, eternal sadness. The sadness of a mummy. Rising to take his leave, the sorrowful librarian murmured in Arcadi's ear, "'The poor child is very ill. He is delirious.' Maurice called the old man back. "'Do stay, Monsieur Sariette. You shall have a game of bridge with us.' "'Monsieur Sariette, listen to my advice. Do not do as I did. Do not keep bad company. You will be lost.' I shudder at the mere thought. Monsieur Sariette, do not go yet. I have something very important to ask you. When you come again, bring me a book on the truth of religion so that I may study it. I must restore to my guardian angel the faith which he has lost. End of chapter 30